Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Uh, welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, today we're joined by Fred Weary from the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace. Uh, he's the author of a new book, The Burning Shores, Inside the Battle for the New Libya, just published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, Fred, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start, like we usually do, just by talking about the book itself. Uh, what what were you trying to accomplish with the book, and what would you say like the main unique contribution of this book about Libya is? This is really the first book that tells Libya's story after the 2011 uh, revolution and the intervention. Um, there's this sense that you know Libya's history stopped after the toppling of Gaddafi, that the country became an unintelligible mess uh, afterwards. What I try to do is is unpack that and to try to tell the story of, of the politics that are at play, the processes, the key turning points, the missed opportunities. So Libya's dissolution was not uh, preordained. <clears throat> and the second uh, purpose of the book is to is to highlight the role of the international community um, in the post-conflict phase as well and their their mistakes. And so uh, most of the book is really focused on this question of like the post the post conflict or at least the post Gaddafi uh, period. What would you say were the most uh, the, the most central and most important issues in terms of the failure to reconstitute uh, or to constitute a state in this environment? Right. Well, I mean, Libyans like to say Libya can't be a failed state because there was no state to begin with. And, and I think that really speaks to the, the, the dilemma that Libyans inherited this hollow state where, where Gaddafi gutted it. Um, he ruled it in a highly personalized fashion, a kleptocracy, decentralized uh, power. And so there was really no, no muscle tissues for governance afterwards and, and no tradition of participation in politics, no civil society. So they were starting at scratch. So I think that's the fundamental issue here. There's this narrative that the, the Libyan or the, the NATO intervention broke Libya. That's not true. I mean, Gaddafi broke Libya uh, across the spectrum. And so I think that's the fundamental thing that you need to look at with the um, the failure of the elections, mm -hmm. with the proliferation of armed groups and, and down, down the line. And you mentioned early in the book, you, you talk about how before Gaddafi fell, you were able to, you know, talk to some of the, look at the military and, and kind of see what kind of condition it was in. Right. I mean, starting in the 1980s, Gaddafi really marginalized the military because he feared uh, coups. This is a classic coup-proofing strategy that's been pursued mm -hmm. by other mil uh, Middle Eastern rulers. So you, you, you gut the regular army, you keep it weak and divided, you concentrate um, your power in a, in a few key units that are commanded by usually by your sons. And that's what uh, Gaddafi did. So I saw firsthand that there was no real military. You had a, a top-heavy rank structure. You had these colonels and generals. And so that had disastrous effects um, you know, after the revolution where, where there was no um, security sector uh, mm -hmm. it, to include ministries, to include the bureaucracy for running an army. And so you had that vacuum, and into the vacuum filled these militias. Now, let's talk about these militias, uh, because this is like one of the, the dominant uh, narratives about Libya and one that comes through very clearly in the, in the story of the book. But let's take a step back. When we talk about these militias, who are these groups? Where do they come from and how do they end up uh, wielding so much power in this post-Qaddafi landscape? Right. Um, I mean, 
first of all, the term militia is somewhat derogatory in the Libyan context. I mean, uh, it, I use it for the sake of a general audience, but but these are these are revolutionary brigades, they call themselves. I mean, these are the groups that arose during the revolution spontaneously uh, to fight Gaddafi. They were clustered around towns. Sometimes they were clustered even more locally in, at the neighborhood level. Sometimes they had a tribal component. In some cases, they had a strong Islamist component. So they were already at work during the revolution. Now, after the revolution, you had the mushrooming of militias. You had, Wait, be before yeah. we get to after the revolution, yeah. let's talk about how they become the fighting force of the revolution. And how do they become armed in the first place? Well, this is an important uh, dimension. I mean, they, they organized themselves locally, but you had foreign intervention. I mean, you had arms coming in um, from, from Qatar, from the UAE, from Western sources. You had advisors. So, I mean, that, that played a, a key role in, in solidifying these, these militia identities. And so then they emerge after Gaddafi falls, and so they've got these weapons. They've got these lines out into their foreign sponsors. Absolutely, yeah. They've got that. They they've got um, a sense of entitlement. There's a, a contest in the capital for the spoils of the revolution over ministries, over armories, over economic assets, and so you know the stage is is clearly set for for chaos. So then, after Gaddafi falls, then I think almost everybody could see, and you talk about this in the book uh, pretty clearly, that it was going to be a problem if uh, you end up with uh, the means of violence outside of the state, that these militias holding onto their weapons was going to be a big problem. Why didn't the state disarm the militias? Why did they fail to actually become a Weberian state? For multiple reasons. I mean, I think um, fundamentally the, the leadership was was divided. Um, the leadership of, of the, of the uh, rebels, I mean, of the transitional leadership. Um, you had this transitional council that was in place for a period of time that didn't have the authority um, to do that. And so one purpose of the elections was to put in place a government that would have a popular mandate that would in turn be able to disarm the, the, the militias. And, you know, there's, a, there's an anecdote in the book where a Libyan uh, a council member tells Chris Stevens, uh, don't worry, these, these Libyan militias will disarm when we tell them they're our sons, and Chris Stevens is immediately suspicious because these militias have an interest in holding on to their their power. Um, it's the classic security dilemma where no militia wants to be the first to disarm because that cedes the advantage to your rival. A key turning point was when the Libyan government in December 2011 started paying the militias. And what that did is it gave incentives for more people to join militias because they could get the salaries. So this notion of militias is somehow, you know, outside of the state um, gets turned on its head. So militias become part of the state. They become affiliated with the Ministry of Interior, with the Ministry of Defense. But of course, those ministries are captured by different factions. So militias become part of this political uh, struggle. Now, there was an effort, or at least some effort, to create some kind of broader national framework for these militias. Um, why did it fail? There were, there were attempts to try to harness them or tether them, you know, as sort of a reserve force to pay them. I mean, the problem there is you, you run into this, this issue of empowering them. And, and what happened was, you know, it wasn't just individual militia men that joined. It was the militias as a whole. So they retained their identity and their command structure. And so these, these projects fell. What they did is just inflated the, the militias, uh, power. There was a, 
project to try to demobilize and disarm them through registering these young men and saying, you know, who wants to go into job training? Do you want to get a scholarship? Do you want to go to the regular police? That program fell apart because of uh, because of um, political divisions. Because one of the uh, authors of that program was tied to the Muslim Brotherhood. And that actually brings us to kind of a, a transition to kind of where Libya is today, where you have this move towards the division of the of the of the country and what appears to be these competing blocks, then and uh, you know the division between the Islamists and the anti-Islamists and the, the Heftar forces against the the remnants of the uh, of the of the GNA and. How do we get there? How do we go from this kind of highly fragmented, splintered um, country with these local militias everywhere to what looks from the outside like this uh, bipolar kind of structure in the country? It looks that way, but it's actually quite uh, illusory. I mean, there, you know, within the East right now, there are, there are blocks of power. There are different militias that have affiliated themselves with Heftar that are starting to fragment. So that's something, that's a, that's a ground truth about Libya, is that these coalitions are contingent. Militias attach themselves to these movements, but then they can very easily drift out of them. And uh, So it's not as hardened as it looks. It's not East versus West at all, no. it's it's. Uh, I mean, that's the... That's one of the uh, you know hard things about Libya is that it's so localized that you have these I mean spoilers that can play a role. But let's talk about the Hiftar phenomenon in yeah. general, though. I mean, because there certainly was this move towards kind of trying to consolidate power, um, and maybe you know from a from one perspective of trying to overcome these fragmentation dynamics that you're describing. Um, so, so where does this come from, and you know why does it succeed or fail as you as you prefer? Well, Heftar was arrived on the scene as sort of the man of the hour. I mean, in, in late 2013, early 2014, you had multiple grievances converging in eastern Libya and Benghazi. You had a, a horrific wave of violence in, in Benghazi that was partly Islamist, but also tribal criminality. And so he stepped into that vacuum promising um, security with this military operation, Operation Dignity. And, and he was, as you mentioned, able to coalesce other actors in the east the Federalists, who wanted to reverse the marginalization of the East, mm -hmm. um, ex-security officers, ex-military, who were resentful that all the money was going to the militias. And so it's just a convergence of these, these um, you know, interests. And, and he was successful. I mean, in terms of, you know, could anyone else elsewhere in Libya do that? No, no one else was able to do that. However, much of it was dependent on foreign support, foreign weapons because he was getting massive support from the Emiratis and the Egyptians and that enabled him you know to sort of play the role of, of a patronage you know, dispersing these these weapons and funds I mean how much weight do you put on kind of the the role of the competition between the UAE and Egypt on one side Qatar on the other side versus like the local dynamics and you know how, how do you tr how do you trace out the relative significance of these uh, these drivers of, of conflict I think it the, the external interference exacerbated these local, you know, tensions. It, it's not the the root cause. I mean, sometimes Libyans say that that our country was you know destroyed. That we're this playing ground for regional powers. But there were there were other, there were constituents for that regional in interference. And um, of course, that competition between the Emirates and Qatar was playing out during the revolution already during the latter stages 
of the revolution, especially during the liberation of Tripoli. Mm-hmm. And so you had those lines of influence that were like the competing operations center. Exactly, the... competing operations room, competing advisors, um, jostling over fun- access to weapons. Um, and, and then that reemerged with General Heftar and the Civil War in 2014, where it was, you know, no kidding. You had Emirati advisors on the ground. You had Emirati airstrikes. You had the Turks and the Qatari shipping in weapons. And so it became a full-blown, uh, you know, proxy war. I mean, if you look back at, you know, what happens after the fall of Gaddafi and you, and you look at, at all of these things, it, it almost seems overdetermined that uh, the state was going to fail to coalesce. Um, and because this, because the book is structured as a narrative, you're telling the story of what went wrong. Um, it it can make it look like this was almost inevitable. Were there things that could have been done in the fall or winter of 2011, which might have set the Libyan state on a different trajectory towards consolidation, away from this kind of uh, fragmentation that you describe, or was this just kind of built in to what was likely to happen in Libya? No, I think there were certain, you know, decisions. And I, I try to impart agency to Libyans themselves mm-hmm. for this, you know. And, and, and uh, I mean, certainly there were mistakes by the U.S. and the international community. But I think the, the management of the 2012 elections and how the elections went off well, but then what came after? And, and could that elected body have had greater authority and effectiveness? Could the international community have helped that elected body so that it didn't, you know, fall apart and become rife with factionalism. The decision to start funding the militias was a major turning point. Um, There's some argument that had the international community shepherded Libya's access to funds so that they didn't have those funds to start paying the militias. And this gets into the the real dilemma of ownership. I mean, who owns the post-conflict recovery? Because the mantra in the U.S. was Libyans are owning this. Well, Libyans weren't equipped to own this, you know, because of Gaddafi's rule and um, perhaps uh, less regional interference, uh, you know, could have forestalled the collapse. But there again, there's the question of U.S. power. You know, how much authority do we have over these allies that are acting in contravention Mm -hmm. of our interests? There's one narrative about Libya that we, we mentioned a few minutes ago, but it's this notion that the real divide is between Islamists and secularists. And your book doesn't really support that, but explain why you're not convinced by this argument that basically this is a struggle between the forces of Islamism and, and radicalism versus the forces of secularism and moderation. It's, you know, well, first of all, I mean, no Libyan would use the term secularist. I mean, all Libyans, I think, agree upon some role for Islam in political life. Um, the, I mean, even if a self-proclaimed secularist like Heftar has made alliances with Salafi militias, you know. So I think the fundamental divide is between more hardline revolutionary factions that want a complete remaking of the, of the post-Qaddafi order and groups that want some preservation of it, uh, some reform of it. And this goes to, I mean, certain tribes that enjoyed advantages under Qaddafi, those that didn't. It's really the legacy of of Qaddafi's um, divide and rule. And you have certain towns in Libya that have been tarred as as pro-Islamist, for example, the the Misratans, and that's vastly exaggerated. And so when you have, I mean, the Emirates were bombing Misratan uh, militias, saying they're bombing the 
Islamists. It's not true. I mean, these were not Islamist uh, militias. So this narrative, I mean, gets spun, I think, for, for some very specific purposes. And so looking at kind of Libya as it is now, um, you know, once again, we have a new or relatively new now uh, UN envoy, Ghassan Salameh, trying to make something out of, of this. And so kind of independently of how we got to where we are right now, if you look at Libya today, do you see any prospect for some better form of state building of any kind of consolidation of order, which could kind of set Libya off into, into a better trajectory? Or, or are we too far gone at this well, point? Well, we're, we're at this sort of frozen status quo where there's not open conflict. So the worst of the civil war is behind us. Um, you've had a number of encouraging initiatives at the local level of reconciliation where Masrata and Zintan, these two towns that were at loggerheads and that were you know, fighting for the spoils of the revolution, have now bridged their differences. You have a number of encouraging um, developments at the municipal level where elected mayors who enjoy legitimacy are talking to one another. So the, this national level you know, process is kind of frozen, but you have stuff going on at the local level. The national level solution, as I understand it, <clears throat> is still stuck. Um, it depends on a, a revision of the Libyan political agreement. There's elections planned, but we know elections are not the panacea. So things, it's, it's a real gamble. I mean, there's this sense that the current um, GNA has outlived its usefulness. You need to replace it with something, but the question is what? The other big issue is the regional um, interference. The fact that, um, and, and there is some positive um, you know, developments on this front where you have the UAE and, and the Emirates cooling with General Heftar and perhaps some moderation in the sense that if, if they want to have influence in this country, they need to support a unified um, you know, a unified process, a unified government that may not include Heftar. Um, so that's kind of where we're, where we're at with the UN uh, mm -hmm. process. What do you think, you know, based on your looking back at what's happened with Libya, I mean, where would you put the main emphasis? Would it be on security sector reform? Would it be on economic development? You said you don't think elections are the panacea. Um, like what, where should we be looking if we want to kind of solidify or stabilize Libya? The main, I mean, the main effort now is on is on the uh, economic reform front, in the sense that that the conflict is now a contest for the spoils of, of Libya's oil wealth, and there's just massive, I mean, corruption. Uh, militias are dipping into the pot, um, and so I think the the distribution issue is key, and, and reforming the economic sector I think can go a long way um, toward toward resolving these these tensions. Um, but it's not just the economy, stupid. You know, I think there are fundamental issues of identity and localism, and and you know, addressing those through um, through empowering municipal level governance. Um, but there again, it's a budgetary issue of empowering them. Um, and and I think the security sector is key. I mean, that that question of the Bavarian state. You know, what what is the military structure going to look like, and how do you deal with these armed groups? I mean, Libya is going to have to address that at some point and have a process for, you know, demobilizing them and, and integrating them. And that, that question was, has not been answered. And so that's, that's the elephant in the room as well. So if you're looking at Libya now and you're trying to draw some kind of broader lessons from it, uh, you know, what would you take away from it? Like what, what, what were the moments where you think things could have been done differently? 
and that uh, now that you've done all the research for the book, you've written it, you want people to know uh, that this is what could make post-conflict situations go better. Where would you point them? I think in that first year after the revolution where there was this window, I think, to, um, you know, to exert greater, I mean, oversight. The, the question, I mean, the, the, the theme that comes up is just this, this rush to elections, this very minimal presence by the U.S., by the U.N. The U.N. mission was not heavily staffed. Um, it was, again, so focused on those elections. The security sector became an afterthought. So there are, I mean, there are real questions I think that the UN is wrestling with, with, you know, how do you do these sorts of post-conflict reconstructions when you don't have a stabilization force on the ground? That was a missing component. Perhaps that should have been part of the mix, but there again, there's going to be a whole host of follow-on consequences. Um, so it's, it's this, you know, question of like, you don't want a complete Iraq-type scenario where you you have this occupation and militarization and heavy-handed, but then the Overlearning that lesson, where you've got this complete, you know, uh, vacuum, is is going too far in the other other direction. All right, we've been speaking with Fred Weary uh, from the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace, uh, author of the new book, The Burning Shores: uh, Inside the Battle for the New Libya. Uh, Fred, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.